Let's hear the prayer for illumination. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of a God will stand forever. Amen. The word of the Lord found in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, from 2 to 8. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rena. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Matthew in the, in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 23. Uh, uh, it begins on page, uh, in your pew Bibles, it's page 1536. Um, back when I was in seminary, m- one of my favorite classes was called Music and Theology. Not just because it was about music and theology, and, and not just because it was the least amount of required reading for any class I'd ever taken but also because it introduced me to a band called Arcade Fire. Uh, but back in 2007, the lead singer of this band, Wynn Butler, was interviewed by Paste Magazine about their new album, Neon Bible. This is what he had to say about their album. Neon Bible is addressing religion in a way that only someone who actually cares about it can. It's really harsh at times, but from the perspective of someone who thinks it has value. When you listen to the album, you hear about the criticism of the practices of religious people in it. You realize it doesn't come out of hate, but it actually comes out of love. Uh, the type of, uh, of criticism that, that maybe you hear from a, a gymnastics coach who calls out bad techniques and bad habits in their athletes that they've picked up from watching other gymnasts because they know that adopting those will actually keep them from experiencing something beautiful, something glorious, something that they adopt will actually lead to their own hurt. I mention that because in a way, in Jesus' last public sermon here in Matthew 23, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. 
See, in Jesus' day, the ones that, that people looked to as the models of, of religion uh, were the teachers of the law. They were the, the Pharisees. They were the recognized champions of biblical living. And yet after three years of ministry, where Jesus had plenty of interactions with this group, in this passage, he isn't talking so much to them as he is talking to the crowds and to his disciples, those who had, who had looked at their approach to religion as, as the gold standard, looked to them as if these people show us what it would mean if we got religion right to those who've seen their approach of the scribes and the Pharisees as if what this God thing is all about, Jesus has something to say. It's here in Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of our Lord. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and, and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They they love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But, But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, and nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single comfort. And then when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you. Woe to you. Woe to you. Before this chapter is over, Jesus says this seven times. Woe. These were words of regret, words of sorrow over the terrible fate that would await another. And the words uh, being spoken by Jesus about these people would have shocked those who heard them. It would be like me telling you that 23-time gold medalist Michael Phelps is a horrible swimmer and don't do what he's going to do or you're going to drown. You know, nobody would take me seriously. They think there's something wrong with you. And that's, that's because those that Jesus speaks about, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these are the people that could swim religious circles around everybody in a very religious culture. Nobody did religion like they did. They were the pillars of the community. They studied more scripture and they had more detailed rules for religious right living than anybody else. And yet, by the time of Jesus, something had been forgotten the covenant. That's what we heard about in the the scripture reading that that Rena read for us. God made covenant promises to his people Israel to be their God, and they were going to be his people. Later, after they entered the literal promised land that you heard about in the reading, God would further promise to bless those uh, who, uh, who remember him and embrace him in his covenant, but also to curse those who forget him and his covenant. In a sense, you could say that this chapter is actually the end of a long, ongoing conversation between God and between Israel's leaders. Throughout history, God would shed more and more light upon himself, show himself more and more clearly to his people, and despite that, after centuries, this is what one of his prophets would say about their religion. 
He says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. But now we would think, well, now we have, we have Jesus. We have a high-definition, 4K screen, three-dimensional look at God in the flesh. Uh, certainly, that would uh, clear, clear the picture up and, and help them to see God better and respond better. But as another pastor said it, after 22 chapters of Matthew's gospel, full of Jesus reasoning with them, teaching them, disrupting them, inviting their leaders to him, the resistance persists. The response actually left little doubt what they really thought about their God and his covenant. It's it's Dan Doriani, a New Testament scholar at Covenant Seminary, that actually describes this passage as as actually one of the more difficult passages to try to preach from because the woes that Jesus pronounces as this chapter goes on really are a statement to a particular people in a particular context at a particular point in redemptive history that were 2,000 years past and so because of that, there's ways that it actually does not apply to people today, but that doesn't mean that the crowds that Jesus spoke to didn't have something to learn from him or that we can't learn something from it all today because something's happening in this passage were not unique to their time and their context. What happens when you remove the heart of God from belief in God, when you remove God's covenant from God's commandments, when you take that type of religion, when you, in the words of Spinal Tap, when you turn it up to 11, like the Pharisees had done, something will always come out. What is that? What do we see here in this passage? First, what did Jesus see when taking a deep look at the the lives and the religious practice of those that were believed to be doing it the best? Second, what kind of, uh, how does that kind of religion actually affect people? And finally, how does Jesus actually offer us something different? That's what I want us to consider this morning. Uh, First, what's this actually look like, this kind of religion? Uh, Well, on the positive side, it can actually be very orthodox. Uh, You know, in verse 2, it says that these people Jesus speaks about sit in Moses' seat, which means they occupy his role as as a teacher of God's law. Uh, That's not a role that you get for being a blatant heretic. In a sense, Jesus actually commends some of their teaching here. And it can also be a very disciplined form of religion. If we read on to verse 23, we'd see Jesus mentioning uh, a very diligent approach to tithing, which far exceeded any of their contemporaries. And yet when their advantage is to be seen as religious, religion can also be plagued with hypocrisy. Seven times in this chapter, Jesus calls them hypocrites. Now normally we think of hypocrisy as something, you know, intentional. It's it's, a pretending to be something that we're not so that we can gain the benefits of being seen that way. And, and let me tell you, the people in Jesus' day, uh, they reap the benefits all right. Uh, in verse 6, Jesus says that they love the recognition that comes from their places of honor at the banquets and in the synagogues. You know, these were spots that were less about a good place to see and more about a good place to be seen. Verse 7, Jesus describes their love of formal greetings that they'd receive in in the marketplaces. You see, for them to be called rabbi goes far beyond the actual word itself as a way of acknowledging that they were spiritually superior over others. Same reason uh, that they like to be called father, the same reason they like to be called teacher, because these were reminders before everybody that they had a social status above others. 
in verse 5, it tells us how they made sure people knew they were spiritual. I think we have a, a, a slide of this. It says that they wore wide phylacteries. These are wearable scripture boxes you see on their, their heads and their arms. And they had long tassels, um, which uh, you see kind of covering the, the top left guy's eyes there and kind of draping down. These were reminders to obey God's commandments, but they made theirs wide. They made their tassels long. In those days, you couldn't ignore these people if you tried. Thanks for that picture. And yet their reason for doing this wasn't because that they were intentional hypocrites. See, their struggle wasn't so much their insincerity as it was their insecurity. This is the type of religion that loves comparing itself to others and always looking for how they measure up always needing to prove themselves spiritually, never able to get enough affirmation. You see, these were people who actually worked hard at being spiritual. They wanted to be more spiritual, so why does Jesus call them hypocrites? It's because hypocrisy can also be unintentional. You see, you can have a very high level of devotion, but you can also be an accidental hypocrite. See, you can do something in a certain way for so long that after a while you don't even know You're being hypocritical in doing it. See, it was never the intention of these people to defraud God's people or to to lead them astray. But when you yourselves are misled, you're going to mislead others that you teach. Verse 16, Jesus describes it. He calls them blind guys. He says that their actions ended up leading people far from where they thought they were going. That's why Jesus says, do as they say when they teach the law of Moses, but but don't do as they do because they don't practice what they preach And sometimes it's in ways they don't even recognize. Yet what they do preach, Jesus says, is often not the law of Moses, but their own traditions. He describes it in verse 4. He calls them heavy burdens that they lay on others. Just to give you a little background, originally these were attempts to try to make the law of Moses relevant to new life situations because this type of religion gets really nervous with gray areas. So they try to kind of fill in the gaps with their own traditions. For example, the scriptures say, honor the Sabbath, you know, one day of rest and seven. But what constitutes work, the thing you're not supposed to do on the Sabbath? How much normal stuff can you do before it becomes work? So they tried to answer that question. They said, sorry, you know, if it's a Sabbath, you can only take this many number of steps, but after that, you're in sin. Stop it. I mean, at best, these were attempts to try to fill out what does obedience look like when Scripture's maybe not so explicit. But, but at worst, They actually became ways of trying to control people's behavior without ever actually addressing their hearts. Telling people, don't take more than X number of steps on the Sabbath without actually addressing, why are you a workaholic? Why are your hearts always restless? Why is it that every time someone asks you to do something, you can never say no to adding one more thing? I remember the first time somebody asked me to lead a, a Bible study. I thought my goal going in that was to point out the most challenging application that I could, but I gave no thought to what might actually motivate the application. See, I thought the guys in my study, their problem was information. They just didn't know what they should do. When really the problem that we all had was was motivation. The fact that even if we knew, we didn't actually want to do it. I didn't realize I was laying heavy burdens on them without doing a thing to actually help lift them. Finally, Jesus says that this type of religion blinds people who practice it. Five times in this chapter, he, he, he calls them blind to the things that they should have known and that they should have seen. But the problem with this type of blindness is it's not obvious. If you're totally blind, you know that. 
but this type of blindness is different. They were blind because they were so focused on one thing that they couldn't see anything else. It's like when Cindy Campbell or one of you asks me to find something in the church, and I do a horrible job at it because I get tunnel vision. I'm looking right here, not there. I'm looking right here, not there. By the way, it's right here. I'm looking right here, not there, not there. It's like, I can't find it. It's like, it's right in front of you. You see, my problem isn't that I'm not looking closely. It's I'm looking intently somewhere else. And in verse 23, Jesus says that while these people diligently focused on tithing their garden herbs, while they were focused on that in the name of righteous living, they'd missed something huge right in front of them, their own neglect of matters of justice, of mercy, faithfulness. Jesus says that they strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. In other words, they try to avoid the tiniest unclean thing, and without knowing it, they engulf the biggest They don't see the obvious inconsistencies in their own rules and eventually become hyper-aware of everybody's sin except their own. Jesus tells us in this passage that when someone takes this approach to religion, it doesn't just affect them, it affects others. How do we see that in this passage? How do we see this affecting others? Verse 13, we start to see it spelled out. Jesus says that it creates spiritual barriers for those who practice it, but also for those who witness it. And now the Pharisees were big about creating barriers to people following Jesus. You know, they were discrediting him at every single point, you know, trying to keep people away from him, but but that wasn't the biggest obstacle they put in people's ways. The biggest obstacle was actually their own lives because their lives sent a very loud, unspoken message. Get your act together. So when we, we hear that unspoken message, that's exactly what we do. We put together an act. We start putting on religious masks. We put on our church face. We put on false personas. But as we do, that sends a false message to those around us. It tells others, well, we did it, and so can you, if you were just better. See, when everyone's pretending to be better than they are, nobody feels that they belong. I know pastors who almost threw in the towel before they started because they, they had all the gifts, but they didn't think that they could keep up appearances like the other pastors that they saw. And yet Jesus is saying here, not be like them. He says, no, don't do as they do because he knows that that kind of religion will either lead you to despair or to lead you to become driven. Verse 15, Jesus talks about these people who travel over land and sea for their cause. Driven people, but but for what purpose? It's actually not to create converts to God, but really to create converts to them. In other words, driven, insecure people creating more driven, insecure people, all of them desperately still trying to measure up. In high school and in college, I saw the same thing at work in my own heart. My own insecurity led me to be driven to succeed as an athlete. I failed at a lot of stuff. It didn't really help. We were were the awkward kid who wasn't, like, super strong. But somehow I had endurance, so I I became the hardest-working guy on the track team, running long distances. And with time, my running had become what justified me because I'd become mediocre. It showed me I wasn't a loser, at least. It, It was my functional religion. I approached it just like the Pharisees were approaching their own religion willing to go to extreme ends in service to it. I'm not a morning person, but I would get up early for those long runs. Uh, I was thinking I was going to be a doctor, but I would do the stupid thing of trying to train through illness. I was the good kid, 
but I would disobey parental authority if it threw off my training routine. You see, I didn't just want to be better. I wanted to be better than you. And when I did it, I wanted to make sure everybody knew it. But what happened at home, and with my friends, and even with my teammates, made me insufferable. My attempts to be loved actually made things worse. It's because this type of approach to things, this approach to religion that the Pharisees had perfected, always makes things worse. Verse 15, Jesus says that their converts become twice as much sons of hell as they are. That's quite the statement. And here's why. It's because they never got to see the thing of beauty that the Pharisees had perverted for them. They only got to see the distorted version of it. All they knew were the errors, so they were twice as likely to err themselves. But add to that the zeal of a new convert. And so the solution to their religion, or the solution of their religion, you might say, actually became worse than the problem itself. Think about it like, like spray-painting your brown grass green so that it would look good for the neighbors. In reality, though, it doesn't actually do your lawn any good, and the more you apply the cure, the less healthy it becomes. Finally, this kind of religion unexpectedly humbles those who actually try to follow it. You see, to those practicing this, this self-exalting type of religion, Jesus is saying this, you know what happens to whoever exalts themselves? they'll be humbled. Eventually you realize that that you can't measure up. You can't actually keep up the act. You find yourself defeated. You're hating yourself. You're feeling like a failure. You're wondering, why can't you just get it together like others? Or maybe instead you double down on religion. You, You recommit yourself to do better, to try harder, to not be such a disappointment until maybe you actually start to believe the story yourself. But then you're right back to where the Pharisees are so focused on your own self-salvation project that you're blinded to your own shortcomings, and everybody can see it but you. When I lived in North Carolina, I met a street preacher there named Gary. He would go around from the different major universities, one campus each day, all week, uh, and you could always find him holding a, a big sign and shouting at people. When asked about his approach to preaching, he said this, getting people angry is the most effective method of preaching. And let me tell you, this guy did practice what he preached. And yet, if you asked him, he could tell you the exact number of years since he last sinned, according to his definition. But if you ask the students that he shouted at each day, if you ask the women that he publicly shamed for wearing jeans, if you ask the couples that he condemned for dating outside of their race, if you ask those whose identity he'd reduced to a slur, you might hear a very different perspective. And I realize that it's with great danger that I share this story with you this morning because of our own tendency to try to compare ourselves with others, particularly those that we think fail worse than us, and say, man, sure glad I'm not like that like an old roommate of mine used to say, you know what, Keith, the closest I ever get to being like the Pharisees is when I say, at least I'm not like the Pharisees. These are the symptoms. These are the effects of this kind of religion. If Jesus' diagnosis is true, and really if we're none of us um, are immune to this, then what's the cure? I mean, how do we actually break free? How does Jesus offer anything different? Verse 12. 
Jesus says he offers something very different, and it begins with humility. You see, while, this, while the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were laying heavy burdens on people, Jesus was saying this, Come to me, all you who are weary, all of you who are trying to carry these heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. But to actually humble yourselves in this way, to receive his rest, first means acknowledging that we can't carry them. But frankly, neither could the Pharisees. The actual commands of God were far more challenging than any of the traditions of the Pharisees, which would offer a false hope of righteousness to those who, who thought they could perform them. But in reality, when your standing with God is always dependent on what you've done for him lately and how you measure up with others, there is no rest. There is no security in that. See, to those who always were striving, striving for something, it's like they seemed that they could never obtain. Jesus is offering the one thing no one else could. He's offering rest. Rest because he offers to do what we can't and what no one else could even try. You see, God said through his prophets what his standard really is. He says, be holy as I am holy. Like, that's the actual standard, that God himself is the standard of perfect holiness, of righteousness, of justice, of mercy, uh, and faithfulness. That the greatest commandment that we receive is to love him with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, never with a divided heart, always obeying fully. I haven't done that for five seconds. If you've done more, please let me know. You're amazing. I, I don't even know. I don't even, I mean, I think of even the, the, quote, good things I do, and even those are done with mixed motives, half-hearted, with other agendas. Yet everything that falls short of, of this standard, God doesn't call partial credit. He actually calls it sin. It doesn't earn us a half point. It, it actually earns us wrath shows that our hearts are divided between a real God and false gods of our own making. It shows our indifference. It shows the actual opposite of love in our hearts. It shows that we don't need just a good example because we're not going to follow it that well. We don't just need a good teacher because our problem is bigger than just information. We actually need somebody to rescue us. We need a Savior. Because God is holy, what he requires is holiness. So we need someone who could actually live that perfect holy life that, that we couldn't live, and yet to do so as our substitute. That's what Jesus offers to his followers. A spiritual resume with our name stamped on it in permanent, indelible ink. And yet because God is just, he says that the penalty for sin can't go unpunished. That's why Jesus offers to take the rejection, to take the wrath, to take the shame that we so fear upon himself when he puts his name on our spiritual resume and pays the cost on the cross. You see, in Jesus' kingdom, he, he's not uh, saying that just that the greatest will be the servant. He's actually showing us what it means for the greatest himself to be the servant by actually serving us, by trying, taking upon our own guilt, our own shame on himself so that we'd actually be free to stop laying heavy burdens on others so they could perform for us, but, but actually serve them instead. While the religion of the Pharisees often blinded their eyes, believing Jesus' offer of rescue actually opens our eyes. You see, we're no longer trying to be in denial about our failings and weaknesses. We actually find ourselves with permission uh, to see in ourselves things that we may not want to see. Let me tell you, the first time that I heard somebody confess the type of sin that I've never heard anybody confess in the present tense, it had two effects on me. One, it made me say, did I just hear him say that? Uh, two, it made me think, why is it that I've never heard anybody confess that in the present tense? Is it that we don't give ourselves permission to recognize some sins in ourselves? 
could it be that that same thing is alive and well in my own heart? And when I looked, I was like, yeah, it's right there. It has an effect on people that we don't expect. It gives freedom to people freedom to acknowledge our sins, not just to ourselves, but before others, because the one who actually sees it all has forgiven us, and rather than like kicking us to the curb, has invited us into his kingdom. It gives us permission to drop the masks, letting the real us be known, because only the real us can really be loved by others. When we have the freedom to actually confess, we start to experience something that maybe we've never experienced before. Real forgiveness, real repentance, and real lasting change. And if you do this, people are going to start seeing something that they've never seen before. They're going to start seeing the real us. And instead of that somehow having the effect of, of shutting the doors on Jesus' kingdom, it actually has the opposite effect. It actually opens doors. See, we don't feel then that we have to live with these religious masks. And, and we actually see that, that we don't have it together, and neither do they. People start to see that the door to Christ's kingdom isn't simply for those who are superior and who have risen above the inferior, but for those who check their self-righteousness at the door, seeing their own need for a rescue, seeing their own need for a savior, because they believed God's promise to do for those who humble themselves before him what they can't do for themselves. Finally, to the insecurity of the religion of the Pharisees, Jesus actually offers a real security, a true security, an invitation into a kingdom where we don't live as superiors and inferiors, but as brothers and sisters, as, as children of a king, adopted a forever family, where we have a father who loves us unconditionally. And you know, you have a father who loves you. You don't have to perform for the crowds. You don't have to beat yourself up because you're not like the other kids. Because in reality, that never really works, does it? I think the guy who said it best was a pastor named J.D. Greer in North Carolina. He describes the difference between the religion of the Pharisees and what Jesus offers uh, using balloons. Uh, Empty balloons like this, if the goal is to, to get it up, to float, empty balloons don't really do much. They just drop. There's not really much to them. And so what we try to do is we try to, you know, you know, solve that solution by filling it with something that we can produce. Hot air. And let me tell you, some of us in here have a lot more hot air than others. Um, and so we're like, well, that's a little bit better, but really it just falls more slowly. And so we're like, okay, so what can I do? Well, what if I just tap it a little bit? And it, yeah, it keeps it up, but it keeps coming down. So I get frustrated, and I was like, you know, I have to hit this like every second or two. Well, what if I just kind of hit it hit a little bit harder? Yeah, that's better. A little bit harder. What if I just, what if I just smack it? I just smack it. It's like, just get up there. Come on. Go. Come on. Go. Just, just do better. Greer describes that as the way religion motivates us. We don't stay up on our own, so we feel we have to be hit and hit and smacked. And it sounds like this. Stop doing this. Get busy. Do more. Do better. Stop it. And yet every single time you hit it, it stays up for a while. You know, religion can give us a little bit of a boost, but in the end, it, the air starts leaking out. We fall. We start falling more quickly. And after a while, the balloon just gets beat up as it falls to the floor. For many of you, that's your experience of religion. You've been bruised by it. You've been beat up. Maybe bruised by others. Maybe the bruises are self-inflicted. I remember talking with a couple who'd been going to church, different churches for years, and I just asked them to describe their religious experience, and they say, you know what? I 
can't remember the last time I left the church not feeling beat up. It's a different type of balloon, though. See, a helium-filled balloon is actually very different. You see, it's actually filled with something that we can't produce. It's not just full of our hot air. It's actually filled with something very, very different. It's filled with something you can't produce on your own. It doesn't need to be smacked. It only needs to be released. Ephesians 5.18 says, now just going to be looking at the balloon the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Ephesians 5.18 says this, be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the opposite of trying to find a power within us. It's actually letting something outside of us come in so that can happen. It's letting the Holy Spirit, the sign of God's promises to make his former enemies his beloved children. It's actually letting that displace our hot air. It's letting the promises of God's unconditional love for sinners fill us until there's no more room for our own self-salvation projects. I remember hearing about this years ago, a a woman who had been going to church for longer than I'd probably been alive, serving faithfully for years, trying to accumulate more of God's favor by doing so, but in the end, feeling worn out. So she checked out a church that a friend of hers had been going to. She started hearing about the radical grace of a God who actually welcomes sinners, not because of what they've done, but because of what Jesus did in their place. When asked what that transition had been like, they said this, When I leave here, I feel like I'm floating. God actually loves me. Today, if you asked those who knew her, they'd say that she's serving with more energy and freedom than ever before. Hebrews 12, 1 says this, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. You see, it's really hard to cling to the dead weight of your own self-salvation projects and your own functional gods when you're clinging desperately to the cross like there's no other hope. Whether you've been trying to meet your deepest needs through outward rebellion or maybe through your perfect religious behavior. There's more to the story. Eventually, that couple I told you about started coming uh, to the same church as that woman I told you about. Where Together, they got to hear about a God who rescues those who can't rescue themselves. Today, all three of them are finally experiencing rest, granted by the God who welcomes the weary. A couple years ago, I, I had a neighbor who, uh, who struck me as the epitome of, of hospitality, of humility and, and love. And so I asked him about his spiritual story. How did you get here? It wasn't what I expected. So he, he grew up going to a church. He was in a church-going uh, family, very traditional uh, but said that you wouldn't have wanted to know him back then in his 20s. If you'd asked him if he were a Christian at the time, he'd say, well, well of course, of course I am. I mean, I, I go to church, I, I work hard at it, um, I don't listen to the wrong types of, uh, of music, I don't smoke, drink, chew, go with the girls uh, that do, and I care deeply about holiness. But if you asked him today, he would describe that 20-something version of himself as, as actually an accidental hypocrite, but not quite yet a Christian says he was always concerned with how he and his family would be perceived about others, and so he was always putting tremendous pressure on them to keep up appearances. He described a time while he was engaged to his now wife, where she was living under tremendous pressure to try to measure up to his exacting religious standards, always on stage, always having uh, to perform to a certain standard. 
He talks about how he'd passively, aggressively question her decisions if they didn't meet his standards, even if there was nothing unbiblical about them. He doubled down on one form of holiness while in their lives secretly rebelling in another as if they didn't even notice the dis. When they became parents, he says he was harsh with their son, wanting him to obey outwardly but, but never able to address his heart. The shaming of his wife and his son made them feel small in a way that he didn't even know he was doing. And he talks about a time when one day he was mowing the lawn and he had his own lawn mowing business where he'd been reading uh, and listening to this pastor on the radio named, named R.C. Sproul and he started hearing about a different type of religion. One that's not about your own self-salvation project, but one that's actually about a God who makes covenant promises, who rescues those who can't rescue himself, and he finally believed it. He finally embraced that. And what began was a transformation from him, which led to another struggle. What do I tell my wife? He wanted to share it with her, but doing so would mean admitting that everything beforehand had been a lie. It would mean confessing his own hypocrisy. It would mean telling her that all of these things that I've been telling you to do to earn my love, you didn't really have to do. By God's grace, as he finally mustered the conversation, the courage to have that conversation, he found the same thing had been happening in her life. And what started out as, as fear and nervousness became tears, eventually tears of joy. They embraced, knowing that they had both discovered a different kind of religion. Today, the man whose wife felt that she had to hide her sin from him is actually the first person that I call if something went wrong and, and I need to confess my sin to another. The one who brought a spirit of shame and despair has been bringing hope and grace to more people than I could count if I even tried. He notices a depth of trust with his children, the ones born after his conversion, that he realizes he didn't quite have with his firstborn when he was the same age. The stress and the chaos that used to follow him like, like a cloud with a stench has been replaced by what could only be described as the aroma of Christ. But that's just one person's story. Yet it's actually the story of what God's been doing for centuries among his people. You see, God's in the business of rewriting stories of woe and actually making them stories of, of redemption, of opening eyes of the blind, of, of granting rest to the weary and to the heavy-burdened. See, Jesus didn't come to perpetuate the religion of the Pharisees, but to point us to a different kind of religion, where masks come down, where religious people get converted, where sinners are set free, and all of them find themselves adopted as a child of a king into a forever family where there's true security and rest. May the same be true of us in this place. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you today, many of us weary and heavy laden. Father, many of us beat up, some of us beat up uh, by our own self-inflicted wounds. Father, we've been beating ourselves up because we can't match the persona of others. We've been beating ourselves up. We've been letting others beat us up because we're internalizing their message that you can only be your own savior if you just try harder rather than the message of the cross which says Jesus did it on our behalf for those who would humble themselves and say, I need this, I want this, I embrace this. Father, may this time as we come to your table be a way of us 
with our bodies, with our actions, embracing this gospel truth that you invite us to believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.